Well, Seth, again, thank you for being on the show with us. We're excited to hear about your journey and your story of um, the several different uh, businesses that you've started and, you know, everything along the way. So we'd like to kind of go back to where it all began. Um, so tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what life was like for young Seth Goldman. Sure. Yeah. I grew up in Wellesley, Massachusetts. My dad was a professor at Wellesley College and my mom was a professor at Boston University. So very academic household. Um, but um, I, I, within that context, I was kind of the slacker. Um, you know, <laughs> um, my uh, everybody was expected to do well in studies, but I also like to do other things. And mm-hmm. among the things I did, I had a little bit of an entrepreneurial itch. I used to go it was at the Wellesley College golf course was very close to our house. So my first little business was finding uh, lost golf balls and selling them back to golfers uh, along with lemonade. And uh, that's a that great just, business, by the way. I always, it, I always well, wondered, you know, like how, yeah. like, because I, I play golf too. And um, you know, I know <laughs> Posh does as well. And, you know, always finding golf balls on the course. And, you know, every time I, I buy a ball, it's like $4 a ball. Right. I'm like, wow, there's, there's definitely a business here. So it's a high margin business because basically of zero cost of goods. But my cost of goods was that whenever I would go into the woods to, you know, search for golf balls, I would get poison ivy. Mm. And uh, so, you know, from my parents' perspective, they, they invested a lot of calamine lotion into the. <laughs> into yeah. The oh, you were, you were an entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial risk taker from the, from the very yeah, start. For huh? sure. Yeah. I figured there was a trade off I was willing to take. Sometimes you risk money. Sometimes you risk time. Sometimes you risk your body. I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. It is what it is. Oh my gosh. <laughs> a lot of, cl- the, the funniest one was, so I had gotten a new pair of shoes and I knew my mom, you know, would be upset if I got my new shoes muddy by going into the woods. So I went in bare feet and then for the next week I had to like, I couldn't walk cause I had poison ivy on the bottom of my feet. <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> anyway, uh, in addition to that, um, I also was raised with a kind of global worldview, which was that, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening in the world. There's a lot of problems in the world and, and you're expected to do something about it, that you're not a, it's not a passive you know, not a passenger on this thing. You're expected to take a role. And, and so that was instilled in me early as well. Yeah. I saw, I saw your father was an economist and he was like very kind of, you know, he was like a, an expert on Russia. And then your mother was a historian and an expert on like China. And and so what kind of, what kind of impact did that, that have? I know I understand like kind of understanding global issues, but was there anything beyond that, that kind of stuck out to you? No, it was really interesting because, you know, um, so I was also raised in a Jewish family and there's a definitely a mindset around thinking about justice. And, and so, you know, you see imbalances in the world, you think about what can be done. So from an academic perspective, socialism is kind of an interesting idea, but both my parents, because of the countries they had studied, understood, you know, the, the shortcomings of, of that model. And so, um, you know, it made you think a lot about what are incentives and what makes things work. And obviously, state-based incentives and communism is, 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 does not work. It doesn't incentivize people. And, and so how do you? And what was neat was that after college, I spent a year in China as a teacher, and then I spent a year and a half in Russia as, also as a teacher. And I got to really see the very – this was it. So not, to date myself, back in 1987, 88, and then 89. And so I got to see 
entrepreneurs emerge from communist societies. And these are pure, I mean, these are people who are entrepreneurial and, and risk takers in so many ways, right? They're, you know, they're oftentimes risking their, their livelihoods and their families to try to make a better life. <clears throat> and that was really inspiring to see. And it was also just really interesting to watch these folks. Sometimes they were starting up a restaurant or sometimes they were starting up a school or even like a bike repair stand. So I got to see entrepreneurship from the really sort of smallest scale. Um, and then you also saw workers who basically had had, uh, and who people who had economic incentives basically de been deprived of them in their lives. You know, these were people who were smart, educated, you know, world-class education, but could not pursue meaningful careers because there just was no way to, um, the state had sort of suppressed all all the really, I think, what are natural instincts everyone has to not just to be entrepreneurial, but to try to attain, you know, a better way of better means of living. And and right. so that was just for me a really just interesting and experience. And I, and I I learned a lot in addition to sort of watching that. Also living in those countries on my own with very few of my own resources, I had to be entrepreneurial as well. Right, I had to try to figure out enough of the language to get by. I had to sort of make a living. I was living off, um, you know, I was working. So, but, um, so I had to sort of navigate my own way in a, in unfamiliar territory. And so all those things were like great, uh, laid, laid a great foundation for me to be entrepreneurial and comfortable with risk. I yeah. remember one time in China, I took a, a train into, um, it was into Hunan, central China. And I got out of the train at like 11 at night. And I walk out of this train station. I'm the only Westerner. And I realize, like, I'm not just the only Westerner on the train. I walk into this huge crowd of people. I'm like, there are millions of people around. Like, I don't know anybody. And I and I barely speak their language. I'm like, oh, this is kind of an interesting. It's a little bit like jumping into the ocean and, you know, where you you don't know where the shore is. And and so that was like, all right, this is, there's, a, there's a risk here. Um, but, you know, let's see if I can find my way. Yeah. And although, you know, growing up, although your parents were academics, was there anyone in your extended family or around you that was an entrepreneur that maybe, maybe you, you look up to or yeah. were inspired by, or maybe, maybe they were just people in, you know, in history or just people you didn't even know that you looked up yeah. to? Yeah. Well, you know, my grandparents, my grandfather was an immigrant himself and had, had sort of found his own, set up his own business. So that was inspiring. And, and then my grandfather, my father's side was a little more established, but he too, had like a, a junk dealer, um, and, you know, business in Elgin, Illinois. So it was neat to just see these were these were people who um, you know found a way to make a living and, and to care for their families and 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 make a you know better opportunities possible. My dad ended up you know going to, to Wharton and then to Harvard for his graduate degree. So and his dad his dad hadn't been educated at all. So that was just really you know neat to see. Um, but I wouldn't say any of them were. What I would call a mission-driven entrepreneur. I don't. Even, I guess that basically didn't exist, you know, back then. Right. I, I saw you um, graduate from Harvard, studied government affairs, and then you were also like a student athlete there. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do in college at that time, or were you? Not yeah. Sure? So I, I thought I was going to be a politician, right? You know, you major in government. And you, I had worked on different campaigns. I in fact met my wife on the presidential campaign in 1988, and so. You know, I, I saw that. So you you worked for Michael Dukakis, uh, right. Michael Dukakis's campaign. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we worked for in particular for Lloyd Benson, who was the vice presidential candidate, and uh, we went out and we're doing advance work, and that's how we met. And so I just assumed I was going to be on that path, um, and 
for me, I think what stuck was I, I liked the idea of address trying to address public issues. But over time, and I did, I, after um, I came back from traveling overseas, I worked for Benson in his Senate office, and, and he was a real impressive person, and I got to travel around Texas with him. And so I thought, oh, that would be an interesting uh, type of work to see, and to see what he did at the community level was, was neat, but it also felt it was just all a little far removed, you know, uh, policy in Washington it takes a while before it trickles down to the way it changes people's lives. And I wanted to see if I could be involved in a more direct um, impact. And then I think, you know, as, as time wore on and I got to see politics become more and more about posturing and less and less about really getting, getting things done and then really polarized. I'm, I'm continue to be happy with the path I've chosen. I don't have any itch to get back into, into politics. I was going to ask you, you know, what your biggest learning was from that time, but I think you answered it. But I'm curious, what did you learn most about yourself in relation to being in that environment, yeah. in policy and politics, yeah. especially campaigning where, yeah. I mean, that well, thing's th- dirty. Well, it, it can be dirty, but it can also be fun. You know, what you're really trying to do in a campaign is convince people of a certain way of thinking. And you try to find powerful images and language to do that. And so you could argue, or I would argue, that's kind of what I'm doing with these companies, right? We're we're on we're campaigning. We're trying to change people's diets. We're trying to help them understand why organic makes a difference, or why fair trade makes a difference, or to think about how a plant based diet can meet their dietary needs, but also do better things for the planet and for other creatures. And so, you know, the the can I would say I'm still in campaign mode. I've just changed the venue, and I'm not in a you know running for election. I'm running right. for for consumers right and and did you feel as though going into the private side would be better in terms of driving the sort of change you wanted to to drive yeah and here's why so first of all what happened with politics i would see you know policies implemented and then you know four years later or two years later depending you know there'd be a change in in leadership and those policies would be undone and so i was like "Eh." so then i thought well if you get it established in the private sector and you can get consumers to adopt it, um, it, it, it has a better chance of sticking and it doesn't need government mandates or legislation to stay. You know, and it's interesting, of course, because here we are, we've just, as we're talking, honesty has been discontinued and you can say, well, you know, change in leadership at Coke and, and you see that undone. But what I would argue is that if you look at before honesty came to Coca-Cola and after, there are millions more people drinking organic drinks. Uh, so even though you could say a change of regime, um, you know, and we're about to launch our own brand of bottled tea. We, there's a market now that there didn't exist uh, back when Honesty was created. And so the, can, the, the change in the consumer has, has stuck. And, um, and so I also, I think government, um, while there's so, maybe some occasions where government mandates are effective for change of behavior, I think the private sector is an opportunity to do it in a much more creative and I think ultimately more enduring way. And at the time, you were, when you were looking to just get into politics, what were some of the causes that you're most passionate about? Mm. Yeah, so certainly one was the uh, lack gaps in economic opportunity. You know, I had done some work in urban Baltimore before going to business school, and you saw tremendous gaps there. And so I actually got involved early on with the um, passage of the what became AmeriCorps, but the first uh, American National Service Bill, um, and and so. That for me was a, a, a had a lot of potential to help create economic opportunity in communities where people lacked it. 
So that was one. Obviously, environmental um, issues were a concern. It, we, we didn't use the, the words climate change back then, but an understanding that we only had so many resources um, available and that they were being depleted or abused in a way that was not going to be able to support life going forward in a healthy way. Um, so those were some of the issues that I got involved, that I cared about, and and, and I'd say still you know, work around. What was your biggest takeaway from business school? I mean, what yeah. what did you? Because yeah. I know there's always you know you always ask folks, and there's always a mixed you know mixed reviews. You know, some love it, some were like, "Oh, it was a big waste of time and money." Yeah, I um, loved I'm, it. I had a great experience, and for me, there were a lot of takeaways. So the first one, so I came to business school as I mentioned. I worked in Baltimore, saw this national service program, um, and saw the movement. But it said, "Boy, there's they have a need for management skills." And so um, I went in thinking I'm going to go to business school from the nonprofit sector and I'm going to come out in the nonprofit sector. But within my first week at the Yale School of Management, I got exposed to this idea that business can be a force for addressing public issues. And so once I got you know, into that mindset, then I just looked at the whole experience of, okay, my goal is to build the toolkit. I need to know all the disciplines. I need to know accounting. I need to know finance, things that I didn't have a lot of background in. Marketing already came naturally to me because of those campaigns. So I, you know, I'd say that was kind of my wheelhouse. Um, organizational and behavior and management. I needed. Um, I, I I had a lot of instincts there, but it was good to just put it in a formal structure. And then, of course, you know, my co-founder in Honesty was my professor Barry Nailbuff, and so I learned a ton around creative uh, innovation, um, strategic thinking, negotiation, uh, and just finding disruptive ideas and how to bring them to scale. And so, and then of course I also found just wonderful classmates who inspired me. And uh, so it, it was for me a great pivot point where I came in as a nonprofit sort of public sector background. And then I pivoted into this private sector, social entrepreneurship and didn't look back. You know, I know there's a lot, a lot of, of the, people. A lot of oh, the, sorry, go for it. Pat. I was going to say, yeah, just a lot of the college experience comes down to who your professors are, right? And like, because you're you're really learning the most from them. And if they're if they're not really great professors, then it's it's really easy to say, yeah, I just didn't have a good experience. And so, were you someone that was like seeking out certain types of professors, or did it was it like kind of a struck of you know luck that <laughs> it you know, was came a across both. It was a little both. So look, I, I, no matter how good my accounting professor was, I don't think I was going to be inspired to pursue a career in accounting, but I had totally adequate accounting professors. And that's not a knock on them. That just speaks to my you know, level of interest, which is I need to learn this stuff. And I learned it. <laughs> um, right. But for the, for the things like strategy and creativity, um, you know, being able to, to learn with Barry was just, it was, it was kind of explosive how, how much fun we had discovering ideas together. Because remember, I was, I was, so Barry, it was a um, intimidating professor for a lot of students, but because I was a son of professors, I never got cowed by, oh, oh he's going to cold call me. Like I was, you know, I was ready for that. And so then Barry and I got to take our discourse just to, you know, a higher level and we get caught up in ideas. And as you know, one, one day when we did the study, the case study on the Cola Wars, and we started talking about the competitive dynamics between Coke and Pepsi, we quickly converged on the fact that what was missing was that less sweet drink. And Barry was ready to, you know, launch the bit, let's do some focus groups. Let's do, and I'm like, I got to find a job. I'm, <laughs> I don't have time for that. But, you know, we, that, that conversation certainly stuck with me. And said before we go down that path, because I'm really curious about those early days, you know, there's a lot of people right now, you know, and when I say right now in this, you know, 
almost recessionary, if not already recessionary period. And you're seeing a lot of companies that are laying, you know, 10, 20, 30% of their workforce. And so there's going to be a lot of people that are either looking for jobs or thinking about what's next. And I think it's something that began during the early days of COVID, whether it was because less jobs became available or people decided that they might need to focus on other things. And there are people like that that are listening to this podcast that might think, hey, should we go to a business school? Should we go to law school? Should we start a business? What should we do? What would your advice be to those mm-hmm. folks? And who are those, like, who would be a good candidate, Let's you know, to go to business school? And why should they say, yeah, you're going to choose business school over applying to different jobs? And Yeah. Well, so it's a good question. So first of all, let me say there are actually, I think, a ton of jobs available right now. because I know that because we've had trouble hiring for roles. I mean, so I keep hearing from other um, entrepreneurs, like they just can't find good people. So the first thing I would do is just make sure you really do that search uh, and, and um, you know, look, sort of look as you, given the current job market, which is, you know, it's, it's a, it's not employer's market, it's an employee's market. Look for what you think your ideal job would be and, and go see if that listing is available because it very well might be. And if it is, I'd say take it. If it's not, then think about what would you need to get there to get to that job? Would you need that extra degree? Would you need that extra skill set, whether it's accounting or, or analysis um, or even just some relevant experience? So yeah, I don't think uh, business school should just be a default when you don't know what else to do. But when you have specific goals about what you'd like to do. So like I said, for me, I, I had seen what was going on in the nonprofit sector. I said, if national service is going to scale, we're going to need talented managers. And so that's why I went to business school and I knew I needed to get some of those skill sets. Um, so I think it, it shouldn't just be a default. It should be done with purpose. And look, it's, it's a significant investment of time and of financial resources. Usually it, it pays off, but you shouldn't just go because you don't know <laughs> what else to do. Right. Yeah. You know, something that stood out to me, I think I saw it was around 1998 um, when you sort of conceived Honesty and, and launched it, or I don't know exactly when it was conceived, but when it was launched. And, um, you know, one thing that we see, especially today, you know, it's really easy to get caught up in the noise, right? As, especially as an entrepreneur and someone who's looking to start a business, there's so much going on, especially, you know, now in, te- in technology with, you know, the metaverse and NFTs and all these like new things. And, and it wasn't, too much different back then, right? 98, that was kind of the time of the internet boom and, and everyone's yeah. sort of launching internet companies. I'm just curious, like, was that something that you got caught up in at all? Or because or, you know, went in and started yeah. like a traditional, you know, exactly. beverage business. I was so, the anti.com. It was so funny yeah. because, you know, we were raising money from investors and I was trying to raise like $25,000 at mm-hmm. a time. And these investors would say, oh, well, just call it honesty.com and you'll be able to raise millions. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but what happens when I have to sell tea? Like, I can't ship it through the internet. You know, I can't, it doesn't go through the pipes. Um, and so it was, it was, it was frustrating um, and it was hard to raise money. And it was also hard to raise money because it was my first time raising money. I had basically unproven business skills and, and, um, the business wasn't proven. It really wasn't on the market. And on top of that, uh, we had developed a very funky equity structure um, that was hard to explain, partially because I didn't fully understand it myself at the time. And so it took a long time. I spent way more than 50% of my time just raising money that first year. Of course, the goal is really I should be selling tea. Um, but 
obviously paid off. And, and when the dot com thing plunged, we were still well, we're still around. So, right. It, it so sense. walk us through that initial kind of phase, right? Like you, yeah. you're kind of brainstorming ideas with your professor Barry. Yeah. How did you guys land on the final kind of idea, and and, yeah. and then what was the next immediate next step? Right. So I had been Barry's student in 95. And after business school, I then moved down to Bethesda, Maryland, where I am based, uh, and moved into the house where I'm speaking to you from. And I got a job working for a mutual fund company called Calvert that did socially responsible investing. And it was a very nice place to be. They had There was a mission agenda to it because they had you know screened funds where they wouldn't invest in polluters or companies with bad environmental you know, labor records or tobacco, anything like that. Uh, but I still had that entrepreneurial itch and, uh, and it wasn't just the poison ivy, <laughs> it was, you know, I wanted to create something. So I gave a presentation, um, for Calvert in New York city one day. And then after the presentation, I went for a run in central park. And after the run, I went to a beverage cooler and I was thirsty and I, and I said, there's nothing here. And I, I was with a friend. He said, well, what do you mean? There's lots of choices. I said, there are, but they're all the same. They all have the same calorie profile. They all have the same sweetener, which was high fructose corn syrup. There's no diversity. And, and that provoked me to reach out back out to Barry. And I said, remember that conversation we had in your class? I think I'm ready to do something about it. And Barry had just come back from India where he'd been doing a case study of the tea industry. And he said, well, I'm ready to do something about it. And I have an idea for a brand name that could really make it all work. And it was Honest Tea. And when he told me that name, that kind of blew my mind. Like, wow, that's a perfect name for what I, you know we could create. And it gives us this license to it in you know do more than just sell tea so i left my job at calvert and i started um working out of the house uh you know writing a business plan which were you married at the time yeah yeah not only married my wife and i had just had our third son so we had uh three boys all under the age of six years old so she um, thought you were crazy or what? Well, she was how on board. She was okay, supportive good. the whole time. She was like, she, you know, I knew you were going to do something. I wasn't sure what it was going to be, but this, this sounds like as good an idea as any. And, yeah. um, and in fact, she, she was working halftime at a homeless shelter. Um, and she ran a jobs program there. And that was uh, basically how we got our health benefits for those first few years. Cause you know, starting out of the house and I got a, drew a very modest salary, um, yeah, so worked out of the house and wrote the business plan and brewed up samples of tea and managed to get an appointment with uh, the buyer for the Whole Food stores that were here in the Mid Atlantic region. And at the time, there were seventeen of those. And uh, you know, went in with an empty Snapple bottle I had pasted a label on and presented it to the buyer and said, you know, I'd love to sell this in your stores. And the buyer understood why it made sense. He he, um, I had sort of laid out for him how different what we were doing was. And he was willing to place an order for 15,000 bottles. And that was how we got started. Did you like tea? Like, yeah, personally? I, that's a good point. So I had spent a year in China. I had spent a year and a half in Russia, which are both big tea drinking cultures. So, you know, I wouldn't say I was a tea aficionado, but I certainly was used to drinking tea. Mm-hmm. And I could tell good tea from bad tea. Not, not super, you know, um, connoisseur, but just I knew how tea was made. Uh, and I knew where it was grown. And I also knew how the role tea played in those societies, which it was very much about tea was the drink you had when you built friendships. Anytime you met somebody you'd meet for in Russia and China, you, you would share tea together. Um, and it was kind of this calm, as opposed to coffee, which is like a pep you up thing. Tea was a little more a bit of calming drink. 
Um, and it was certainly simple, right? You, you, all you need is hot water and leaves. And so that, that could be had anywhere. What was the culture? I mean, I I know it's really going deep on tea, but like, what was the culture of tea in like 97, 98 in America? Yeah. People didn't understand it. They, you know, they knew what Snapple was. They knew what Arizona was. Right. right. Um, but they didn't know black tea or green tea. They certainly didn't understand leaves. Or matcha or this and that. No way. No, they just understood tea bags, you know, was sort of the way you got, or salada tea was the way you got your tea. And it, it was, you know, a fringe. It definitely wasn't the, the main way people did yeah. it. But, but um, I knew from my travels that tea is the world's second most popular drink, second only to water. And so there would automatically be a whole um, international community of people who would be, who this could appeal to if it was presented the right way. Right. And it also wasn't going to go out of fashion. There'll certainly be trends where tea is po- more popular and less popular, but um, you know, it, it was and is my belief that there's always going to be a role for tea on the shelf and in our diet. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because Pat and I both come from Middle Eastern backgrounds, so tea was something that we grew up with, but, you know, it wasn't something that you necessarily see outside of our homes. You know, yeah. at, least, at least I hadn't seen it or I wasn't exposed to it until I would say, I mean, like we have Arizona, sure, and all the other stuff, Snapple, yeah. but, you know, in the typical American household, I would say coffee was probably more consumed yeah. or soda was more consumed than tea even. Even in our households, those yeah. were more consumed. Well, it was interesting. We studied the whole Snapple business model. And basically, Snapple rose to prominence as a healthy alternative to soda. <laughs> it really, Frankly, it wasn't more healthy. It had just the same amount of calories, same, same main ingredient. But because it was tea, it was positioned that way. And then we said, okay, well, we could be a healthy alternative to Snapple. It's it's funny that you say that too, because we've had multiple folks on the show who have companies that are all kind of, you know, supposed to be a healthy alternative to soda. And and, and it's like something that people have been kind of doing for so long, trying to kind of launch alternatives and soda still prevails, but somehow there's like a market also for it too, which is an interesting kind of, you know, except it's interesting when you go to the natural food stores, tea is, has a much more bottled tea has a much more prominent presence than soda. Um, and to the extent that's sort of part of where the future is, I, I think, you know, there's, like I said, there'll always be a role for tea. For my personal purposes, does yerba mate fall under the tea stuff as well? Yeah, you could say it's a tea. When I, I've been talking about tea, I'm talking more about the traditional camellia sinensis. But but yeah, what we could talk about tea is just to say botanicals infused in the water. Yerba mate, which is grown in South America, yeah. um, you know, qualifies as a tea as well. Yeah, I, I personally do enjoy yerba mate. So yeah, you know, I mean, or all those things. Just I feel like everything has its place. You know, once in a while, you know, guilty pleasure. You got to have like a Coke or Dr Pepper or root beer or something with like a burger. I mean, what are you gonna do? I, I know, I know, it's not healthy for you, but you just gotta have it. <laughs> you know, Seth, I'm curious. At the time when you quit your job and you you know you had this family to take care of, was like, were you afraid at all? Like, was money a concern? Were you yeah. like, I'm sure you wanted to have this like lifestyle you wanted to uphold. How did you yeah. go about that? So that's a good question. So first of all, yes, uh, absolutely. You know, there was some fear and risk involved for sure. And, um, but we also felt like, look, there's, and, and, and I've always said, there's, there's never a perfect time to launch a business. And you could argue that, you know, having three kids under six, one just born, that's not a good time either. But um, our risk um, profile was only going to grow as the kids got older, because then you'd have to start worrying about college and house and everything like that. Um, 
The other thing is that um, this is just total serendipity, but you know, even though my dad was a professor, as I said, he used to make little side investments in our name. And so it turned out in 1972, he had invested $700 in a company in, in, on my behalf called Dynatech. And in 1997, 25 years later, Dynatech went through this management buyout that led to me ending up with a check for $50,000. And I'm like, well, nice. it's kind of a sign. That's my risk capital. Right. So, you know, my investment in honesty was $50,000 and my salary that first year, $50,000. So um, I had that. But what was really interesting uh, from a risk profile perspective was that within, so literally the day Barry and I were making tea in the kitchen to get to go to Whole Foods, my wife walks in with our, our second son. They had just come back from the, a follow-up doctor's appointment where our son had been diagnosed with it was called a coarctation of the aorta, which meant his heart, the main artery in his heart was closed off and was, was constricted. It was going to need to be open, basically um, really aggressive surgery to open up his chest and snip out the part of his aorta that were closed. That was um, a, a really scary moment. And Frankly, if that appointment had happened two weeks earlier, I might not have gone and launched Honesty. Um, you know, right. I, I might have just said, "Well, this is not the right time to do that." Um, mm -hmm. and, but of course, you know, we ended up doing it. But so, you know, it wasn't all about money. It was just like, "Well, how much risk? How much stress can a family take?" Um, but right. but what's neat about the whole journey, uh, and I'm. You know, so <laughs> thankful to say our our son is still thriving, and and uh, you know he still has that uh, heart condition, but he's he's he is uh, just did a triathlon with me a few weekends ago, so it's certainly not holding nice. him back. Um, but our family has been through all this journey together, and in fact, when honest tea, when we got the news about Coca Cola discontinuing Honest Tea, I think my sons took it even harder than I did. I mean, I was honestly disappointed, but for my sons, this was you know like the fourth brother who just got cut and. Uh, they really, you know, were upset that that uh, Coca Cola had done that. Yeah, and I definitely, we definitely want to talk about kind of what happened recently with that. And but before we do, you know, starting a business like this, I can imagine there's so many things that go into it, right? Like you, you have to figure out the formula, you have to find the vendors, you have to figure out the whole supply chain thing and the operations, and then you have to go out and sell it and bring in accounts and and just so much to do. What was the role that? kind of you you took and what was the role that barry took early on oh so barry that? yeah barry was chair of the board he 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 was a wonderful advisor friend and supporter and he definitely helped identify people to raise money from but all of those tasks you laid out were done by me right as i was this i was the ceo but it really was the ceo and so all of the operations hiring firing um those were all done by me and um that's there's no, you know, no back, no backstop, right? It's you got to do everything, yeah. and and frankly, I think that was a wonderful training that still serves me well today. And here, you know, standing up another company, you got to do every every piece of it at first. And if you that helps you hire better, you know what the kind of person to do the role, and it also helps you interact with your team as the business grows because I can ask them questions, I can have conversations that are well informed as opposed to sort of asking them about stuff I don't have much knowledge of. And was there any piece of it, whether it was the hiring, the firing, the managing, the other stuff, relationships, is that that like you struggled most with? Well, just due to the nature of the business, distribution was a huge challenge for us, right? So we, we could get into the natural food stores pretty well, um, but we always struggled to find um, distributors who could carry us beyond natural foods. And so 
you know, we wanted to get to the delis or the convenience stores and we just, those um, relationships are hard to come by because, you know, Coke controls a bunch of those distributors. Pepsi controls a bunch of those distributors and the ones they don't control are often controlled by what was at the time Snapple and Snapple viewed us as competition. So, you know, we had to find our own way around it. We, we would work with like a, uh, a corned beef distributor to get to the delis. We worked with a gourmet food distributor to get to the cheese shops and the gourmet shops. And then we worked with a, to get to the, some independent grocery stores, we actually worked with a charcoal distributor. Um, and so we just had to find ways to, you know, to get to the, we knew the consumer wanted this product. They just had to be able to find it and we had to find a distributor to get it there. Seth, did you enjoy the operational aspect of the business or were you more so, you know, on the marketing growth. I, love, I loved all of it. It's, it's, it's a, um, and, and you'll, I'm sure as you guys talk to founders, there's different people who have different skill sets and passions, yeah. but I'm an operator. I want to be under the hood. I want to understand because it's like unlocking a puzzle, right? You've got to, um, not just make the business grow and that takes sales and marketing, but you've also got to make it make money. And that takes, um, operations and, and margins. And how do you figure that out? And some of that's negotiation and some of that's sourcing, some of that's formulation and some of that's just thinking creatively about different ways to do, do things. And so the one thing that I can say, and I'm sure you see this with a lot of your founders is, um, we, I don't know to say it's ADD, but you have the ability to multitask, right? right? To do tons of different things. And, and you never get bored because no day is the same. And right. it's funny. That one thing I didn't share with you about my growing up that probably best prepared me to be an entrepreneur was in high school. Like I was doing every activity. I was doing sports. I was in music group. I was in the um, theater, you know, the musicals. I was in student government. I was on the debate team. And of course, I, I did some studying <laughs> as well. And so, you know... Um, when I think about what I do as an entrepreneur, it's like, well, that's kind of what I'm doing. You just have to be able to move from one conversation to the next, from what interacting with one kind of person to another. And, and that's for me, what makes it so fun. And, and, you know, I, I, um, as I mentioned, I didn't have the greatest aptitude for finance or accounting, but I need to, those are like the table stakes. I've got to understand those things and be able to, 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 uh, understand how to move the levers, uh, to operate effectively. Do you feel as though, and I'm, I'm not trying to sound offensive here at all, but do you do you feel as though being almost the jack of all trades and doing a bit of everything doesn't allow you to be a master at just one thing? Yeah. And like, like yeah. you're not known as Seth is the guy to go to for you know accounting, right? Like, <laughs> sure, like Seth no, is maybe the guy to go to for like you know this industry because I know you are, but kind of give me the insight for that because i feel like that's a that's a debate that people have personally all the time yeah right? well i always say you've got and i'm i'm probably a good embodiment of you got to hire people better than you so like if, if i'm the most knowledgeable finance person in our company that's not a good thing and if yeah. I'm the most knowledgeable operations person that's not a good thing either I, mean, I have to understand what those folks say but um you know what i think my wheelhouse is finding mission-driven businesses and bringing them to scale and we do it with creative marketing and great branding and um, real passion and commitment. And, and so, you know, to me, this, the skills I have are just the vehicle, my vehicle to make those things happen. And, and, and really the, probably the biggest you know, skill set or most important one for this work is to, to get people inspired about a message, empower them to go pursue that cause and support them any way I can. 
and uh, and 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 not get in their way. <laughs> and and yeah. that's how that's how we make things happen. I think I read it was in 2011 or so, so like 13 years or so after starting the company that Coke acquired uh, 40% of the the business. How did that come about? Um, did, what did they just approach you and say, "Hey, like we want to we want to partner with you," or were yeah. you looking for buyers at the time? No. So in 2008, we had become the best selling team in the natural foods industry, which was really a, a an aspiration we had had for a while, and so and we were growing into new channels. We were getting interest, whether it was from CVS or Target, places that were going to require huge distribution solutions that we were going to have a challenge meeting. We, we didn't have that national network. And at that time, we actually started getting approached by other big companies, whether it was Nestle or others that saw how natural the natural channel was sort of bleeding into the mainstream. And they wanted to be part of those brands. And I got approached by Someone I had known from pre- his previous work, who was now part of Coca-Cola's what was called the Venturing and Emerging Brands Group, and they were set up to identify and invest in the next billion-dollar brands for Coca-Cola. And he said, "Would I be open to a conversation?" And I said, "I'm always open to a conversation." I knew we weren't ready to sell, but um, happy to you know have a conversation. And then um, some folks from what was called VEB came up and met, and, and we talked. And I said, "I can't. I'm not. I, this is too early to sell, but I'd be happy to look at." having an investor because we are going to need to raise money and we also need help reaching these distribution channels. And so that's where Coke first invested in 2008. And then they had an option to buy the rest of the company in 2011. And we felt like, you know, that was, if, if the goal was to democratize organic, which was always our goal, then this was a good partner that could help that make that happen. And we offered them something they didn't have, which was a, a, a real um, step afoot in the organic natural channel. And also a, a brand of authentic bottled tea and a less sweet drink as well, because they were, you know, obviously not known for health drinks over there. And so, um, so that's why we um, agreed to do the deal with Coke. Yeah, and then it was Barry, like a, I think a few years. Yeah, go ahead. Was Barry still involved at the time? Oh yeah, no, Barry was chair of the board, and he absolutely was very uh, heavily involved in the negotiations. You know, because we didn't work with an investment banker, so it was basically Seth and Barry, and then we had a lawyer. Um, and we negotiated with them and um you know uh yeah i i would say that the, the the way the deal was structured was very positive you know um you know what happened was we continued to really run the business on our own coke was a minority investor and they were supportive but they didn't um we we still were able to lead with with purpose and and very much in our own entrepreneurial style yeah, and then and then was it like in I think 2015 when you decided to step down as CEO? What, why did you make that decision at the time? Yeah, so um, the brand had what had we said was graduated into the broader Coke portfolio. So there was still work to do and support the brand, but it wasn't like I was managing the P and L, managing the team like I used to. Um, and also because I had gotten really excited about this new company, I had been uh, j- uh, joined as a board member back in 2013, Beyond Meat. Uh, my wife had read an article about this company getting started, and it was an idea that really excited us, this idea of replicating the taste and texture of meat using only plants. And so I became a board member. And then in 2015, I took on an expanded role as executive chair of the board, which enabled me to um, spend half my time helping to build and scale Beyond Meat. And, and I still played a role in uh, building and scaling Honesty. Um, yeah. Were you... Always a vegetarian? No. Uh, we became vegetarian in 2005 when our oldest son um, started. Uh, he had become a vegetarian at the age of 10. 
And he started asking some questions that were provocative and challenging. And he was also, you know, a 13 year old middle schooler who was probably having some challenges gaining acceptance of his ideas. And so we did it in part to support him. And, you know, we were willing to give it a try. And, uh, but we've been vegetarian ever since. And we actually turned vegan in 2020. So I guess wow. two, and a, two and a half years. I'm curious, how was that transition first from not being a vegetarian to being a vegetarian and then yeah. being a vegetarian to being a vegan? Because, I mean, it's not just a fad, you know, you're trying to make a lifestyle change. And that means a lot of the food that you're eating is now cut out of your diet. Yeah. Like, it changes a lot of things besides just what you put in your mouth. Yeah. Like, it, it was a big transition for us uh, and as a family, but our, our, our boys had actually transitioned before us. So it was, we were willing to go along and uh, we certainly didn't see any drop off in either physical performance or our health. If anything, we felt better, but it's interesting. The move to being vegan was as big a change. So going from, you know, omnivore to vegetarian is a big step. Vegetarian to vegan was actually as big a step. And I would say there, the results have been even more, not just sort of neutral, they've been positive. So now I find I recover uh, even faster from workouts that I do. Um, I certainly have the stamina, whether it's for working or just sort of spending a, a, you know, a day uh, working out um that i did not have before and i don't get any of the inflammation i used to get um sort of inflamed or just sore joints i don't have any of that uh and so but there is an adjustment to be made in terms of finding foods to eat and but we're all we're all in on it now and it and and it also being a vegan really does penetrate your the mindset of your daily life because you you know you do have to go through life looking at food a little differently and so you can't just sort of walk into a sub shop and grab lunch the way other people do. Um, but no, no doubt from, from our point of view, it's been real, actually liberating. I'm curious just to delve deeper on that mindset or like, you know, yeah. how does that make you feel? How does that like feel in general? Like yeah. it almost feels like a little more challenging. I don't know, but yeah, it, 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 it is challenging, but once you get to it, what was interesting, we did this not obviously knowing the pandemic was coming, but we did it in 2020 is when we started. So basically just before the pandemic really hit. And what we found is that it gave us a a kind of holistic way of living um, so that, you know, as the world was kind of going and kind of going crazy and felt out of balance, we felt really in balance, in balance with nature. Like we, we just um, really felt like what we cared about and how we were acting and behaving was in sync. And that was a really, I said, just a kind of counter to where the world felt. It, it just was a really um, grounding way to, to, to right. live. Yeah. Right. You know, speaking of, we talked about transitioning, you know, being a vegetarian, speaking of transitions, you know, transitioning from being like an operator CEO to like just kind of sitting on the board, was that a struggle for you? Because I know you ended up starting another company yeah. in 2020. Um, yeah. How did you deal I with that? Loved, yeah. I love the work with Beyond Meat, and and for the five years as executive chair, I was an executive. I mean, I was you know out selling in Europe or in or in Asia. Mm-hmm. I was helping um, work on marketing or helping work on margins. So it was you know Ethan Brown was and is still the CEO, but I was a, a really um, close partner to him on solving major business problems, and obviously then eventually helping him take the company public. So. There was a lot of work to do. It was not me sitting in the back seat saying, do this and do that. Um, right. But then once we did go public and had finished our first year as a public company, 
I was ready to get back in and into that. Um, one of the things I always talk about is that challenger mindset. I, I always want myself and my team to have a challenger mindset. And, you know, the Beyond Meat still is a lot of work to do, but having gone public, it was like, all right, well, we're at a different level as a company. I want to go back into the shallow end of the pool and, you know, learn how to swim again. I want to be able to really um, scale a new business. And so I um, transitioned away from my role in Honesty um, and away from my role at Beyond Meat as chair of the, exe- executive chair of the board. And I just became chair of the board. And that freed me up to first get involved in uh, as a co-founder in Plant Burger, which is a chain of uh, 11 restaurants. Uh, and then shortly after that to launch Eat the Change, which is our new company, which sells uh, planet-friendly snacks. Awesome. So speaking of the decision that Coca-Cola made to discontinue Honest Tea, um, where, I mean, where were you at the time when you even found out? How, and what was yeah. your immediate reaction? Oh, man. So I was in LA. Um, I had gotten a, a text message from someone I was friendly with at Coke, and I'm still friendly with, with lots of people over at Coca-Cola, who said, hey, um, can you be free Monday morning to talk to senior management about an important business matter? And I, I, I didn't, he didn't say it was honestly, it was being discontinued, but I had enough of a sense, like, because I have no active dealings with Coca-Cola, I, I, I assumed it wasn't a good thing. And so Monday morning, I got on the phone with, with uh, some senior execs and they explained to me how Honest Kids was doing well and is going to continue to be a focused brand for Coca-Cola. Uh, but that Honest Tea uh, had, had not um, thrived during the pandemic. They had had some supply chain challenges. They hadn't invested in the brand the way they had other brands. And so it was shrinking and they were going to discontinue it um, as they pursued what they called a fewer, bigger bet. So um, they were going to invest in, in another big tea brand there. And so I found that out in the morning and um, by the end of the day, well then, so then after I found out, I you know hung up and I went for a run to just get out a lot of frustration and think things through. And on that run, I thought about, you know, for me, the best way to respond is probably just share my thoughts on a LinkedIn post. And I drafted that in the next hour. And then uh, I waited until Coke had announced the news internally. And then when they did, I put up my LinkedIn post. Um, and boy, that post blew up. It got over a million views on LinkedIn, thousands of likes and hundreds of comments. And uh, that was, and I ironically, that was how a lot of people found out. Like, so I've since talked to our, you know, our tea suppliers. They found out about the discontinuation of honesty through my LinkedIn post. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, a lot of stores found out that way. And um, uh, obviously a lot of our consumers found out that way as well. And even some of the bottling plants found out <laughs> through my LinkedIn post yeah. as opposed to. And, and not to not to knock Coca-Cola because they're you know they're they're this massive conglomerate of brands and they have obviously all these different brands they're focused on. But did you feel like if you were still running the company that you would have been able to weather the storm or was yeah, it? Yeah, well, it's that an interesting. Inevitable? I think it, it's a good question. I think it's a combination of things. I think it's not. It wasn't just me. It was the people who who made the deal, right? So um, there were people, leaders at the company who really were in, literally had their career invested in Honesty's success. Uh, obviously, I did, but there were people there as well. And so um, not long after I left um, Coca-Cola, some of those people left as well. So there just weren't, wasn't the same base of people who were committed to Honesty's success. And, um, you know, I could understand if you're seeing a, a brand uh, declining in sales and maybe has margin challenges because of some of the supply chain issues, 
when you have to make a business choice about what are you going to invest in, you could understand the numbers. What those that decision totally missed was what kind of company do we want to be in the future? What are we trying? But it's such to a recognizable. Yeah, and it's such a recognizable brand. Like, why not spin it off, sell it to private equity, kind yeah. of just try to revive well, it, right? Like, no, because they they were committed to honest kids. They were going to keep in, you know building honest kids, and and so I understand why you wouldn't want to. Um, have, you couldn't you couldn't have you you couldn't have Coca Cola managing the Honest Kids brand and then someone else managing an Honest you know anything. Uh, right, right. And all that stuff. Yeah, so I I understand that. But to me, the bigger disappointment, and I said this to the folks, wait, you know, so we have given you, we basically laid a path for you to reach, to be the top selling brand in the natural channel, to be relevant to natural consumers, uh, relevant with a less sweet drink and to have this fair trade platform that you never had. And you're going to just walk away from all of that. And if you think about where the consumer is going, you know, that's so clearly an, an area of opportunity. And, uh, you know, they were. And so that to me was a, I mean, for so many reasons, a, a disappointment. But so the first thing that happened to me was just shock. Like, oh, it's just so terrible. And I've got to share my frustration, which I did. And and then people would say, well, are you going to go launch a brand? And I'm like, when I had, if you would ask me six months ago, would I ever launch a nice tea brand? I said, no, because Honest Tea is there doing what I want a nice tea brand to do. Um, and then and then what happened is several companies, friends, approached me saying, hey, we want to launch. We want to take that shelf space. Could you be the face of this brand and, and we could launch it? And you could sort of give us your playbook. And I, I first was like, well, I guess we could. But then the more I thought about it, I'm like, wait a minute. The team that I have at Eat the Change is the team that built Honest Tea. Same marketing and, and salespeople. Uh, we shouldn't be delegating that work. This is work we should be doing. And, and, and then I also heard from our tea growers who were so worried, like, here we are, we've made all these investments in organic and fair trade. And, you know, Honest Tea was a great customer, but if Honest Tea goes away, what happens? And I'm like, oh, that's that would be a an injustice to these farms, which did make such, you know, commitments here. We've got to make sure they have a place to, to sell their drinks. And of course, the consumers as well, who missed, who would, who were upset uh, about us missing, you know, our product potentially disappearing. So all those things combined for me to say, we're going to just expand, eat the change. You know, eat the change is about planet-friendly food, um, but uh, an organic bottle tea could easily fit into that charter. And, and so uh, we got we got into it and, and uh, we're getting a great response as we start sharing the recipe, the brand with, with buyers. There was no non-compete or anything that bars you from doing that? Never, never no. I, um, nothing like that. I mean, obviously, I, I couldn't go out and sell something called Honest Tea. But no, I never signed a non-compete. That's a good deal for you. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I get the initial frustration, but to your point, you know, it clearly means that there is an opportunity here that you and perhaps even others will be able to not only bring products like this back into the market, but also be able to monetize on it, right? Like, yeah. you know, I just think that when you are a part of such a large organization like that, it just becomes a matter of priorities and sometimes, you know, priorities shift and yeah. leadership changes and things happen and, you know, other it becomes less of a priority or things become more of a priority. But it doesn't mean that from my point of view that the product or its impact necessarily changes. Oh my gosh. No, I was just in a Whole Foods um, two weeks ago for a new store opening. There were two and a half shelves 
of honesty. <laughs> and, you know, that that shelf space isn't uh, going to disappear in the sense that, like, no, well, everyone's going to lose their taste for tea all of a sudden. No, right. there, there's still tremendous opportunity there. And, and you know, us launching, we're not going to be able to launch enough items to keep take all that shelf space, but we should capture a good portion of it because uh, we know we know the drinks that, you know, are meeting consumers' needs. Yeah. I'm curious. So for Plant Burger, uh, I saw there was a bunch of locations. I think you had said 11 and more yeah. coming. Yeah. Um, are you using already existing plant-based products or is it your own yeah. plant-based product? Well, yeah, we use Beyond Meat as the main uh, product, for, certainly for the, the beef uh, analogs. We, yep. we work with other brands for a chicken sub, you know, substitute and uh, obviously French fries and shakes. We work with other brands as well. And it's... Yeah. The goal there is just to make plant-based eating fun and delicious. Right. And I think to your point earlier about being vegan, being vegetarian, but more so being vegan, it's not always easy. It's not always yeah, exactly. fun. It's not always sexy, right? Yeah. I it's think not that, always fun. It's not yeah, always fun. Like that's why the unhealthy shit is so popular because everybody was able to build such a sexy brand around it or make it affordable. And I think that at scale, which is what – I think really, really we need to even achieve mass adoption is it needs to be cool. It needs to be accessible. It needs to be reasonable. And right now, and like at least, you know, in the last, even when 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when all this stuff really started blowing up, like I remember as a kid, Whole Foods was an expensive place to go shopping. And now as more people have adopted a healthier, you know, whole food lifestyle, let's call it organic lifestyle, the prices have come down, right? Obviously, Amazon's come in and also helped bring those prices down. And so, you know, in terms of trends, do you see that year over year there are more people that are um, becoming vegans, becoming vegetarians? So, uh, no. What I see are more people becoming uh, flexitarians. So the goal is not to make the world vegan or vegetarian. That's just a that's a that's a long walk. Right. <laughs> I obviously wouldn't have a problem if that happened, but I don't think that's realistic. What I do think is realistic is that more and more people will be open to, to flexing and so having more plant-based meals. And to me, that's that's a great outcome if we can make that happen. And and I would be entirely satisfied uh, if we can just keep moving people toward that. And that's, that's really what we talk about when we talk about eat the change. It's, it's just change your eating habits. It doesn't have to go, you don't have to go vegan, but you can have one more plant-based meal per day, or you could mix an element of of plant-based food into your diet. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how, that's the the kind of uh, aspiration we have. Right. And I remember we were just talking to a founder of a plant-based chicken company. um, And one of the things that I've recognized and I asked him as well is that a lot of these like plant-based meals I've realized have a very high sodium level to them, you know, and that's not necessarily healthy either. So I know it's still a work in progress. I know it's still the early days. How do you improve on those things to truly make it a much more healthy, much more healthy experience? Yeah. You know, I think it's all a journey. And so these, it just like, uh, so many technologies that keeps iterating and improving. One thing that's interesting, you know, Stanford did this study with Beyond Meat where people swapped out Beyond Meat for uh, animal meat and, and they found there was no increase in the sodium levels in those people's, um, you know, sort of 
when they did tests. They didn't have high sodium, no high levels of sodium. So um, some of it is just in formulation. The the what happens is the um, the the, the plant based products basically come seasoned, and so they will have versus obviously a cow meat isn't seasoned, so it's not going to have the same level of sodium. But the end result may be similar. Um, so mm. I think it's just a um, a process, and we certainly. Um, haven't seen issues with like a plant burger where people say, Oh, you know, it's too much. Like, yeah, it's increased my blood pressure. Cause I have a yeah, lot of sodium. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you, there's so many other benefits, whether it's no cholesterol, lower saturated fat. So right. Right. You know, I think with everything in, in our diets, there's gives and takes. Totally. Totally. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. When are you guys coming to um, LA? Cause Pat and I definitely <laughs> want to see. We'd love to. We got a lot going on in the East coast for now, but someday yeah. we'd love to. Yeah. Yeah, would you say would you say speaking of like the next three to five years or so, you see yourself just kind of continuing to build um, Plant Burger and eat the change and and kind of that stuff, or is there is there anything else you're passionate about that you're like wanting to work on? This is I got my hands full. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of upside here um, to still build, right? So you know, eat yep. the change is just rolling into the natural channel. We're barely cracking mainstream channels, and and obviously with this new bottled tea launch tons more doors to pursue and of course to think about how we get into food service we are just we just launched a really fun kids line so uh, our first product line at eat the change was a line of mushroom jerky and then we were trying to think about I, I, you had heard me talk about honest kids and how successful that was i'm like how do we create a kids product that's planet friendly as a snack and we found that carrots are one of the most water efficient crops there are and we found a way to make it a, a carrot, a chewy carrot that fits in a kid's lunchbox. So that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, we can also make that work for adults because these things taste so good. So we've done that. Uh, and then, of course, the bottled tea is opening up lots of new doors. I do feel like there's a lack of good adult snacks. I really oh, yeah. do. Like, like especially now that you're working, like, you know, you're flex working or working from home. And you're constantly hungry and you're constantly looking in the refrigerator and there's barely anything ever. You're like, yeah. oh, you know, like, like for us, it's like trail mix. Like that's yeah. like, you know, you just get a handful of trail mix, some raisins and cashews, this and that, whatever, you're good. But, you know, why aren't there like good, healthy adult snacks? And is that something that you're yes. also looking at with? Yeah, um, that's what these company? carrots are. These carrots are amazing. They, they are basically, you know, three full servings of carrots in a bag, but these are just so snackable and just really delicious. They've got, we soak them in fruit juice, so they're a little chewy. Uh, and then we add some flavoring and they're just really um, a treat. But they are much healthier than the normal things you would eat as a snack. When will all these things be available? Like I assume online or in stores? Yeah. So actually they are – the kids' uh, snacks are available out in California and stores like Air One. Uh, and then in Northern California, the mushroom jerky is there. Um, the carrots – the kids' carrot snacks are launching nationally in Sprouts. Uh, and so – We'll see them expand um, around the country really here in the coming months. Awesome. Well, we're excited to, to try out the adult ones uh, and uh, everything else that, you know, hopefully Plant Burger does come to, to LA and we can try it yeah. out or, or if we're in the East Coast. But this has been such a pleasure, um, Seth, to just like talk to you, learn about your story and like all the wisdom you've accumulated over the years and, <laughs> um, you know, looking forward to seeing all the great stuff to come. Thank you, guys. Wonderful to talk to you and, and uh, look forward to sharing the journey ahead. Awesome. Thank Thanks, Seth. Seth.